And it is another week. This is Andrew Wood, Executive Director of Hope Resource Center. Thank you so much for tuning in, whether that be live over at Joy 620 or you're listening to the podcast, the archive over at investinghope.com, Google Play, iTunes, Podbeam, wherever podcasts are found, you can find this show. We are grateful that you're, that you're listening on this cold, 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 uh, Tuesday afternoon. You know, uh, here in Knoxville, for those of you that are listening locally, uh, we're not getting any of the snow and ice. We are getting the cold weather, but my family in Middle Tennessee, I got family over in Memphis, man, they're getting hammered with ice and snow and school's probably going to be out for a few days over in that direction. Even Knox County today went virtual, uh, just in case there was some, uh, slick ice or, or, uh, you know, slick spots on the roads. Where I grew up, it was always, we would always go, why, why is school closed? And everyone would always say it's because of the back roads. It's because of the back roads. And, and, uh, now where I grew up, there were back roads everywhere. Everybody lived on a back road. Now that I live here, I even hear people say it's because of the back roads. I'm like, there's not as many back roads, uh, here in the Knox County area, but there are, uh, they, they wanted to keep people safe. One thing I will say for, for students that are going, that are in Knox County, one thing COVID has done is showed that we can go virtual. And so a lot of students, even on, uh, on days that, that school is called off, uh, are still having to go to school. My, my kids are homeschooled. So, uh, they still had school today as well. And so, uh, hopefully you're staying warm. Uh, be praying for those folks, uh, really in the South that, that aren't used to this type of weather down in Texas, Austin and Dallas and Fort Worth. And I mean, they're just getting blasted. I've, I've seen folks from Texas say that they're actually rationing out electricity right now. So there's different parts of the, uh, of the state in, in different counties that are being told, okay, you get electricity for three hours and then we're cutting it off because they're trying to save energy. And could you imagine? I mean, that, that, that would be, uh, that would be something. Now where I grew up, we would, uh, the longest I can remember, we went a full week without electricity, uh, back during the ice storm, uh, early nineties. Uh, but I knew people that lived, uh, you want to talk about back roads that lived way out and they went for quite a while without electricity. But, but even in parts of Texas, they're, they're without water. Uh, and so it's one thing to be without electricity. It's another thing to say, Hey, you don't even have water. Uh, that's going to change some things up. So be praying for those folks that are dealing with the weather. Also be praying for, uh, for those that are out working to get electricity back to people, cleaning the roads. I, I know people that, that work in that industry and they are, uh, they haven't slept that 28, 30 hours, uh, 40 hours. They've just been driving the roads, salting and clearing, uh, and, and just doing the work, getting up and, and taking care of our, uh, the power poles and all of that. So be praying for them and their families as well. So today we got a few things we want to, we want to touch on. Uh, look, I don't want to toot my own horn, but because it's, it's not a good subject that, that I'm bringing up. But if you go back and listen to past shows, I have been talking about Governor Cuomo's handling of the pandemic in New York. I, I've been talking about it since the beginning. Now, this man has, has gone on all the news outlets and, and has been heralded as this, you know, this great leader, uh, the, the next best thing. We need to all look to Cuomo and how he leads through this. Uh, he's gone on with his brother on CNN and he's been on all the news stories. He, he won an Emmy. He wrote a book during COVID and we touched on this a couple weeks ago. The man during COVID, New York's one of the worst hit places in the country. And this man, who is supposed to be a public servant, wrote a book. He took the time to write a book about how to lead 
through this pandemic? Well, what we have found and, and what we've been screaming on this show uh, for for months is that they weren't giving us all the information when it came to uh, nursing home deaths. And, and there's been different investigations and different reporters and journalists coming out and saying, look, we think he's hiding some of the numbers. We think they're cooking the books. We think they're, they're not counting all the nursing home deaths. Well, we now know that to be true. And it's not just because journalists said it, but now the attorney general of the state of New York did their own investigation and said, yeah, we were off. We were off by thousands. And, and, and the reason is they were one of the few states if you were a nursing home resident and you were taken out of the nursing home to the hospital and you died at the hospital, they were not counting you as a nursing home death. Now, why would they do that? Well, they did that because it, it makes the numbers look better. We can just lump you in with all the other deaths instead of making it look like a nursing home death. And, and why would they want to... Uh, why would they want to do that? Why would they want us to, to see the nursing home death numbers be lower? Maybe, maybe it was because of a policy they put in place, putting sick and infected patients back into nursing homes. Back in, and we, look, we, we, I sound like a broken record, but that's what they did. They put them back in nursing homes. They were sick. They were contagious. They put them back around the most vulnerable people in our population to this virus. And then, it's like they were surprised when more people got sick and more people died. We've known from the beginning, the average death rate, the average age of death, excuse me, the average age of death is 78. What do you think the average age of those in nursing homes and assisted livings are? That they are, it's going to be 75 plus. And so to, to, to sit around a table, to sit around a committee room, to sit around a, a policy room and say, hey, here's what we need to do is we need to take sick patients and put them into nursing homes with other vulnerable populations, what do you think was going to happen? And so now folks in the state of New York are upset. And it's not just, look, this isn't just a partisan thing. This isn't just Republicans saying, hey, Cuomo's bad because he's a Democrat. No, no. The attorney general of the state is a Democrat, did an investigation and said, yeah, this this isn't good. Now we have fellow Democratic legislators in New York. So so from the state legislature, who uh, this article over at the New York Post says, fellow Democratic legislators in New York weren't buying Governor Cuomo's explanation Monday as to why he refused for months to release a true accounting of nursing home residents who died from the coronavirus. Assemblyman Ron Kim of Queens, who's a Democrat, whose uncle died from COVID-19, bluntly said that, quote, all of it is uh, is well, I'm not going to say what he said, but let's just say he thought it was nonsense. That's the, the nice way to say it. And he said it was a cover-up. He said, quote, they could have given us the information back in May and June of last year. They chose not to. Kim said after hearing Cuomo was blaming the Department of Justice probe for delays in releasing the accurate coronavirus death tally of nursing home residents. Cuomo cited an exclusive August 26, 2020 story in the Post that broke the news about the DOJ inquiry into his administration's nursing home admission policy and the undercounting of deaths, claiming Albany legislators should have known about the probe based on that report. Kim said lawmakers could have passed laws to tighten up accountability and liability in nursing homes to save lives if they had the information sooner. Kim also said Cuomo's comments Monday don't square with what top aide Melissa DeRosa told him and other legislators during a private meeting last week. 
when she said former President Donald Trump made the issue a political football and claimed that it is an excuse for withholding the nursing home data. The Post first reported on her explosive remarks after obtaining an audio recording of the meeting. And and basically, we froze, DeRosa said. So DeRosa is saying that that President Trump at the time made this into a political football, and so the, the government there in New York, everybody froze. And that's why they didn't release the numbers. Cuomo saying something completely different. He's saying that there was a probe going on, and that's why we didn't get the numbers out. Somebody's not being honest. Kim said this further. He said she talked about the potential that the information would be weaponized against them. DeRosa needs to be accountable for what she said. So, so listen to that. This is what frustrates me about politics is, is both sides say you're trying to politicize this issue. So they were saying at the time that President Trump was politicizing the issue. But they didn't release the the accurate numbers because they were afraid of what? They were afraid what the numbers would do to their politics, to their chances of staying in office, to the work that they've done. So they didn't want to be transparent because being transparent was going to look bad at the man that wrote a book about leading well during COVID. You see, bad numbers when it comes to nursing home deaths don't look good for a man that has the number one bestseller on his hands. And that's where we are. She implicated all of us in the cover-up, is what Kim said. DeRosa on Friday issued a statement mirroring what the governor said Monday, that the administration was dealing with federal probers before it would release more detailed nursing home data to state legislators in the public data. Meanwhile, State Senator uh, Alexandra Baagi, as a Democrat out of the Bronx, challenged Cuomo's assertion that his team informed lawmakers that it would delay release of nursing home fatality data because of the federal probe. And, and um, this senator said this, no, New York, or no, Governor Cuomo, you did not tell the entire Senate or Assembly that there was a DOJ investigation as the reason why you didn't share the nursing home numbers. I found out about a DOJ investigation with the rest of New Yorkers in the New York Post story Thursday is what the senator finished with. And then another senator, uh, Julia Salazar of Brooklyn, another Democrat, claimed Cuomo was lying. Uh, she said this, if the governor had actually informed the legislature months ago that his office was withholding the data they had on total nursing home deaths, there would have been no need for them to have, have a call with a group of legislators last week to inform them of this for the first time. The governor can claim, as he's done, that they withheld the data because they thought it would be used against them by the DOJ. But claiming they informed the legislature is a lie on top of a lie. If he had been honest in the first place, he may have had one bad news cycle. But now, it's much worse. Another senator, John Liu of Queens, also said the federal probe wasn't an excuse for months and months of delays in misleading or withholding information that the public deserves to know. He said he'll be back, he'll, he will back legislation curbing the governor's emergency powers because of Cuomo's fumbling of the nursing home issue. The status quo can't remain. There needs to be a revocation of some of the governor's emergency powers. For months and months, we've been asking the executive branch, the governor's office, for this information. It was information our constituents were demanding from the state government. Lou said he was practically disturbed, or particularly disturbed by state attorney general James's damning report on nursing homes released last month that found that Cuomo's health department lowballed the COVID death count of residents by 50% by excluding people who died 
in hospitals. After, hours after the report, Team Cuomo stated or started to clean, come clean by releasing more accurate data that increased the COVID-19 nursing home death tally by nearly 4,000. Senate GOP Minority Leader Robert Ort of Niagara said Republicans were never notified by Cuomo's office about the DOJ probe and request for time to, uh, to release nursing home data. The minority leader said this, people want the truth and they, the only way that can be provided is through investigations by the Department of Justice and the Attorney General. A state judge on February 3rd ruled that Cuomo illegally withheld COVID-19 nursing home data from the Empire Center for Public Policy and order its, ordered its release. The watchdog group filed a legal request for the information and was stonewalled for six months before the judge ordered the administration to begin releasing it. The Empire Center's Bill Hammond said Cuomo's hiding before the DOJ probe to sit on a true accounting of nursing home deaths doesn't hold water. Cuomo and his administration was fighting to release the release of the data before and after the DOJ probe. It's not plausible that they couldn't cooperate with DOJ and provide information to legislators and the public. You see, this is why we've been talking about this, I, I don't know, since August? Since August. That's when the New York Post said, hey, we don't think Cuomo and his office is is being completely accurate with the numbers. Since August, folks, we're halfway through February. And now we're getting the numbers. And again, you, you want to talk about a political football. You have people in New York. New York, a state that, that has been closed down for going on a year now. Some of the worst hit areas in our country happened in New York, New York City, to be specific. And nursing home deaths, probably the worst anywhere in the country there in the state of New York. We knew this. And you have a governor who, again, took the time to write a book, took the time to go on a publicity tour, took the time to to point fingers at everybody else while he's saying we're doing the best and we're the best and we're doing everything right. And now the numbers come out and it's clear that the administration there in New York was not doing everything right. They were hiding things because they knew that would make them look bad. And now you have Democrats and Republicans there in the state of New York saying, Governor Cuomo, this is not good. We have to do something to correct it. Now we'll see what happens moving forward. But at this point, there's no choice but to report on the facts that were there as far back as August of 2020. And I hope we get to the bottom of it, and I hope this administration is held accountable to what they did there in the state of New York. We'll talk more when we come back. But then they send me away, teach me how to be sensible. So as we continue the conversation, look, the reason I keep bringing up New York on this show is because this show is about celebrating and, and having a conversation on life. And, and so when I, ju- when I talk about life, I'm not just talking about when it involves abortion. Look, we're pro-life from womb to tomb. Obviously, the most uh, most of the time on this show, we're going to focus it on abortion and we're going to focus it on babies in the womb. I mean, that's what we're about to get into. But what happened in New York and what happened in other states, th- th- this isn't a political issue for me. I mean, it's a political issue because the, the governor is uh, a political office. But whether it be a Republican governor or a Democratic governor, we knew from the beginning, and I, I go go listen to the old shows all the way back to July, back to August 
of 2020. And you'll hear me say on this show, putting patients, infected patients, contagious patients back into nursing homes is one of the dumbest political moves ever. Ever. Now, now they're, they're going to say back during that time, well, we're doing it because we were afraid our hospitals were going to be overrun. Well, they weren't. So it's one thing to say, okay, we're, our hospitals are overrun. We got to put these patients somewhere. That's one thing. That's like going to church on Sunday and, and every seat is full. Well, then what happens? Once every seat is full, we're going to bring in more seats. But you don't go in on Sunday and half the building is empty and go, man, we really need to bring in more seats. We're going to have to tell people to go, go sit in our overflow room because, you know, it could get packed here, here in a little bit. No, that's dumb. And, and if anybody were to say otherwise, you would say, well, well, right now it's not packed. So why would we do that? Why would we use an overflow room when, when we're not overflowing? So why would we put sick and contagious patients back into nursing homes when our hospitals aren't overrun? You know, I've said it before that, that we actually put naval ships up to New York just in case we needed that overflow. We did that. Samaritan's Purse put makeshift hospitals in tents just in case you needed an overflow. And they were told, get out. We don't need you. So who's playing politics here? And now we know that thousands more died and, and likely because of the policy that was in place, putting infected, contagious patients back into nursing homes. It's, it's wrongheaded. It's dumb. And you're seeing what happened because of it. Those are the ramifications. I mean, this whole time Cuomo and de Blasio have been saying, you, you can't go out to eat. You can't go to the synagogue. But yeah, we're gonna, we're gonna put a lot more people back in our nursing homes and get all the vulnerable sick. That's what we're gonna do. It's nonsense. And so I'm glad that, that some light is being shed on that and I hope they're held accountable. But I do want to shift gears a little bit as we look to the abortion debate and what's going on around the nation. And one of the new challenges for pro-lifers, and, and, and this is an article over at National Review, uh, which I, I cite quite a bit, but but they're kind of on top of it, on top of it a lot more than, than most. And so one of the new challenges for pro-lifers is going to be chemical abortion. And the article says this, as part of a broader effort to expand access to chemical abortion, House Democrats are demanding that the Food and Drug Administration remove safety protocols for a drug most commonly prescribed for abortions during the first three months of pregnancy. Under its current policy, the FDA requires women to obtain the first of two chemical abortion pills in person from a healthcare professional rather than, a, than via telemedicine. The in-person mandate is intended as a safety precaution to ensure that women are monitored and have access to follow-up care as needed. Last week, several Democratic Congresswomen on the House Oversight Committee wrote to acting FDA Commissioner Janet, Janet Woodcock demanding that the agency, quote, immediately eliminate the medically unnecessary in-person dispensing requirement for this abortion pill. The congresswomen claim that imposing this requirement in the midst of a deadly pandemic, one that has disproportionately impacted communities of, of color across the United States, is, is something that we need, that they think needs to be dealt with. Uh, needlessly places, and they say it needlessly places patients and providers in harm's way and further entrenches longstanding health inequities. 
The letter is the latest move in a year-long effort from Democratic politicians and pro-abortion groups to eliminate safety requirements on chemical abortion during the COVID-19 pandemic, pushing to allow women to obtain the drug via telemedicine. Last March, a coalition of Democratic attorney general urged the FDA to undo the safety guidelines for the duration of the pandemic. In May, the American Civil Liberties Union sued the Trump administration on behalf of a coalition of abortion advocacy groups demanding an emergency order to lift the FDA safety policy, which the groups asserted was medically unnecessary. Over the summer, a federal judge sided with the ACLU, calling the FDA safety standards an unconstitutional substantial obstacle to the supposed right to abortion because of the conditions created by the pandemic and related lockdowns. By causing certain patients to decide between foregoing or substantially delaying abortion care or risking exposure to COVID-19 for themselves, their children, and family members, the in-person requirement presents a serious burden to many abortion patients, U.S. District Judge Theodore Chong wrote in his ruling. Now listen to that again. Listen to that quote one more time. By causing certain patients to decide between foregoing or substantially delaying abortion care or risking exposure to COVID-19 for themselves, their children and family members. So so they care about children there. They don't want their children to get COVID-19, but the, ch- the, the child in the womb, yeah, that, no care for that one. Get rid of that one. But any anyone's walking around, we can't expose them to COVID-19. But we can actually end the heartbeat of the one in the in the womb. That's fine. But don't you dare expose another one to COVID-19. Now, in the life of the baby inside of you, that's completely fine. That's okay. Actually, we need to make it easier to do that. That's what this judge is saying. We need to make it easier to end the life of the baby growing in the womb. But yeah, we need to protect that other child. For sure. See see how nonsensical that is? That decision stood until just last month when the Supreme Court overturned that uh, Chong's decision and ruled 6-3 to three that the FDA could reinstate its safety standard. The court's reversal has sent progressives back to the drawing board, now leading efforts such as this letter from House Democrats to lobby the newly installed FDA commissioner. The debate is especially interesting because data suggests that an increase in the rate of chemical abortion is a central reason for the recent increase in the overall U.S. abortion rate. As Michael New recently pointed out, and and I've read it on the show, the number of chemical abortions women have attained has risen consistently since the FDA approved the chemical pill for abortions in 2000. Between 2015 and 2018, the percentage of total abortions that were chemical increased from 25 to 40 percent. Among the 42 states that reported data on type of procedure in both 17 and 18, the number of chemical abortions increased by more than 10 percent. That rise in the number of chemical abortions is likely a major reason why the CDC reported a rare increase in the overall abortion rate in 2018, even though the rate of abortions in the U.S. had been dropping fairly steadily since 1980. Meanwhile, the Democratic campaign to undo safety requirements on this abortion pill ignores the risk to women who take the drug, especially without adequate supervision or access to follow-up care. Many of the drug's possible side effects and complications require subsequent in-person care or emergency room treatment, which can be especially difficult to access during the pandemic. According to one study, between 5 and 7% of women who undergo a chemical abortion will require a follow-up surgical abortion. That's not a low number. 5 to 7% is a lot. Another survey found that more than 3% of women who take 
the abortion pill required emergency room admission to manage complications. A recent paper in Issues in Law and Medicine cataloging FDA reports of adverse events after chemical abortion found that, quote, significant morbidity and mortality have occurred following the use of the abortion pill uh, over the last two decades. As abortion right activists have pushed to loosen the FDA safety protocols, pro-life advocates have begun pushing in the opposite direction, rightly noting the potentially grave hazards to women's safety. Last September, a group of Republican senators asked the FDA to classify the abortion pill as an imminent hazard to the public health that poses a significant threat of danger and remove this pill from the U.S. market. As Democrats intensify their efforts to remove all precautions from the chemical abortion drug, the pro-life movement should direct its attention to this new challenge in the abortion fight, which takes the lives of unborn children and puts their mothers at risk. That is what the chemical pill is doing. And we're not talking enough about it. We'll be back. So last segment, we talked about the uh, kind of the new fight for the pro-life movement is going to be chemical abortions. And, and that's we believe that is why we saw an upward trend of the 2008 abortion numbers. Uh, and it's really one of the first times we've seen that number increase. Uh, and, and we think it's because of the chemical abortion. And now during the pandemic, they're, they're using that as an excuse to make it even easier to uh, to get the abortion pill and to end the life of the baby in the womb. Look, the goal is to make it easier. It just is. And and it's a lot easier for an abortion clinic to prescribe a pill and say, we don't even have to see you. I can see you through Zoom, telemedicine, take the pills, you'll be fine. Yeah, 5 to 7% of women that, that do this still have to have a surgical abortion. Yeah, around 3% have to be hospitalized. But yeah, trust me, you'll do fine. You'll do fine. You know, it's interesting to me it's interesting to me that with COVID-19, if you don't wear a mask, you're told that you don't care about your neighbor, even though the numbers show that, I mean, the chances of, of somebody dying from this virus isn't super high, but yeah, there's a chance. And so what do we do? We rightfully care about our neighbor and we, we put a mask on, we socially distance, we do, we've done all of those things. For almost a year now. And anyone that says otherwise is, is, is lying to you. The vast majority of the populace is, is doing all of those things. Churches have stepped up and done that. We're doing that here at the studio. We're doing that at Hope Resource Center. Look, places are doing all they can to keep people safe and, 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 and healthy during this time. But yet when it comes to abortion, you have abortion proponents saying, look, w- just let them take a pill. I'm sure they'll be fine. The percentage of folks that have side effects or that have to go to the hospital or that still have to have a surgical abortion is so low. Three, you know, 7%, 7 to 10% is low. That means 90% are fine. Yet when you make the same argument for COVID or really for anything else, you're told that you're a terrible person. So the problem with with our society today is no one is consistent. And, and making it easier to to end the life of a baby in the womb is nonsense. It shouldn't be easy. It shouldn't be. That's a life. And it shouldn't just be a flippant decision to easily end the life of someone else. It shouldn't be. But yet here we are. 
So let's look at what Arkansas is trying to do to correct some of that. And in Arkansas, lawmakers are considering two bills that touch on abortion, one more far-reaching than the other. The first is Senate Bill 6, which would prohibit nearly all abortions, with an exception only for those performed in instances when a mother's life is at risk. The measure, the measure which was, was uh, written about in National Review in December, has just been passed out of the Public Health, Welfare, and Labor Committee in the Arkansas State Senate. As Republicans hold a commanding majority in both chambers of the, of the State General's Assembly, the GOP has 28 state senators to the Democratic Party 7 and 78 state representatives to the Democrats 22. The bill is likely to pass when it comes up for full vote. According to the draft text, lawmakers aim to, quote, to ensure that abortion in Arkansas is abolished and to protect the lives of unborn children, end quote. Though a regulation as strict as this one has no chance of surviving a legal challenge under current jurisprudence, the bill has two main purposes. First, it would serve as a trigger law, which we, we've done similar here in Tennessee, intended to take effect in the event that jurisprudence on abortion is altered in the future. So what that means is that the Supreme Court were to roll back parts of Roe v. Wade and sus- subsequent abortion cases, allowing states to regulate abortion more than it is currently permitted. A law such as this would ensure that most abortions immediately become illegal in Arkansas. So, yeah, we, we did that in Tennessee. It's a trigger bill. So it says the day Roe v. Wade is overturned, abortion is illegal in the state of Tennessee. Arkansas is trying to do the same thing. The day Roe v. Wade is overturned, abortion will be illegal in the state of Arkansas. Second, the bill is intended as a possible vehicle to provoke the loosening or overturning of Roe and subsequent rulings, and the bill text says as much. Quote, the state of Arkansas urgently pleads with the U.S. Supreme Court to do the right thing, as they did in one of their greatest cases, Brown versus the Board of Education, which overturned a 58-year-old precedent of the U.S. and reverse cancel, overturn an annual uh, and annul Roe v. Wade, Doe versus Bolton, and Planned Parenthood versus Casey, the bill states. The second measure under consideration in the Arkansas General Assembly, the Medical Ethics and Diversity Act, aims to protect the conscious rights of medical workers. The bill, which recently passed the state Senate, would allow healthcare workers and institutions to decline to participate in non-emergency procedures to which they object. Though it does not enumerate any specific procedures, the measure is most likely aimed at protecting healthcare workers who object to medically unnecessary procedures such as abortion elective sterilization, or sex reassignment surgery. Opponents of the bill insist that we'll allow medical professionals to deny necessary medical care, but the bill explicitly states that it cannot be applied to emergency procedures. The measure is especially worthwhile considering that abortion supporters and advocates of hormone treatment or surgery for gender dysphoria increasingly oppose the right of healthcare workers to decline to perform such procedures. So buckle up. That's an interesting bill. Now, what that's saying is medical professionals can say, look, this isn't a non, this is a non-emergency procedure and I don't, I, to, to, to provide it would go against my conscience. So what it's saying is to provide an abortion would go against my conscience. To provide a gender reassignment surgery would go against my conscience. To, to sterilize would go against my conscience. And so it's going to be interesting to see what that looks like. How will the courts, because it'll probably be passed in Arkansas, and then no doubt it will be challenged in the courts. So what will the courts do with that case? I, I don't know. I don't know. We, we would like to think we have some freedom when you're a medical professional to, to say, look, I, I just, I don't feel comfortable doing that. Don't want to do that. But, but I don't know where we're at. 
one of those cases will will likely go to uh, federal court, and then you know I, Arkansas is probably hoping at some point it gets to the Supreme Court level, and then they can take it up up there. But but look, that is unfortunately that that's how a lot of this happens. We pass a bill, we pass a bill knowing that it's not uh, going to make it through the legal process. Pass a bill knowing that at some point it's going to get to the Supreme Court. I mean that's the goal now. Hey, we're going to pass this bill. It's going to be challenged in court, and a judge is going to uh, rule against us, and then we're going to appeal it, and we're going to keep appealing it until it gets, hopefully, to the Supreme Court. That That's how laws are passed now. It's unfortunate, but but that's where we're at. And, and so because you have sides that won't budge, you have one side. Uh, you know, if anyone budges, if anyone has any compromise, it's the pro-life side, the pro-life side that says, okay, what about uh, – restricting abortion except for in the case of rape, incest, or life of the mother. You see, that's a compromise. Because if if I go out and say, I want to restrict all abortion, no matter what, what's the first line that they're going to throw at me? They're going to say, what about the life of the mother? What about rape? What about incest? And if I come back and say, okay, let's, let's have those exceptions written in the law, meaning... If you were raped, if it's incest or life of the mother, you can still have an abortion. They're going to then come back at me and say, well, but we still don't want to restrict any other abortions. You see, the, the abortion advocacy arm of their movement, they don't want to see any restrictions. Like, do you follow that? NARAL, Planned Parenthood, all these major players, they don't want to see any restrictions. None. And you say, well, what about 20 weeks? What about after we know the gender? Nope, they don't want to see any restrictions. And every now and then they'll, they'll play their, they'll, they'll show their cards. We've seen that in Virginia when the governor said, you know, if a baby is born, we're going to set it over to the side and then we're going to have a talk with the parents of what we want to do. You, you saw a, uh, a legislator in, in the state of Virginia that said even up to time of delivery, you could still have an abortion in the law that she had crafted. You see, that that shocks us, but it shouldn't shock us because they don't want to see any restrictions. We've heard lawmakers say in the past that uh, the baby doesn't have any rights until it leaves the hospital. You see, that that is where their stance is. So it's, it's interesting to me that the only ones that are being called to compromise are the pro-lifers, are, are those of us that say, I'm pro-life 100% and... I think abortion should just be restricted, period. Well, then I'm called a zealot and a crazy person. But when they say you can literally abort all the way up to birth, they they are called champions of women's rights, even if the baby that's about to be born is a female. We live in a weird time where we want to remove all sexes. We want to remove all normalcy when it comes to pronouns. Yet, the abortion movement still stands on the women's right initiative. Now, now they won't stand when it comes to sports. And, and when now trans athletes are wanting to come over and play against women, 
They don't, that, they're not for those women rights. They're only for the right to end the life of the, the human inside of you. That woman, that, that's the right that they're for. Even if the baby is a female. You see. And so that's where we are, having these conversations. So Arkansas is trying to do it. So we'll see what happens there in the state of Arkansas. We're going to see other, look, we're, we're very early into the legislative session across the country. So what you're going to see in the next few weeks and few months is you're going to see state legislatures, blue state legislatures that go far left when it comes to abortion. You're going to see red legislatures that go far right when it comes to abortion. And we'll see what happens. We'll talk more when we come back. So as we finish up today, one thing I do want to talk about briefly is coming up in April, April 29th, we are having our banquet. We're going to be doing that online. We're calling it a night with hope. Uh, you can watch it from the comfort of your home, your living room, maybe a church with some friends, however you want to do that. But it's going to be a great night. Last year we had a, a great event. It was online and, uh, and we, you know, went so well. We wanted to do it again this year. And y'all showed up in major way, and, and it's just been amazing to watch what uh, the Lord has done through through you to continue the work of Hope Resource Center. And so uh, I'm grateful for that. And so April 29th, 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, you'll be able to watch that over at investinghope.com. You'll be able to watch that on our Facebook page, Instagram, YouTube, all those places. We'll have more details coming up uh, in the near future, but I did want you to put it on your calendar, April 29th, investinghope.com. Uh, you'll be able to see it. There, we're going to be sharing stories of hope. We're, we're going to be hearing from me. Uh, and it's just, it should be a great night of, of celebration of what hope is doing and, and what we're able to continue to do through the, uh, the partnership of folks like you. And so again, investinghope.com, you can, you can learn more about that. One thing I do want to point out too, that again, we're grateful for you listening to the show. You can find this show at Joy 620 live every Tuesday afternoon at five o'clock. Uh, it's five o'clock Eastern time. And then, or, or you can find it uh, on our website, investinghope.com. You can find it at Podbeam. You can find it at iTunes, Google Play, wherever podcasts are found. You can even tell Alexa, uh, to play it and, uh, and she'll play it for you as well. And so, uh, we appreciate you listening to the show. What, what we try to do every single week is give you a glimpse into what's happening across the country. And, and the reason we do that is because there, there's a lot of things happening. And, and I talked about it last week in, in, with the David French article in terms of, you know, a lot of times when, when elections go, go the opposite direction we want them to go, we tend to wring our hands like we're, oh, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? We, we do that as Christians. We do that as pro-lifers. We, we do that as anyone that cares about, uh, policy debate. And so if the election goes in what we would say the wrong way, and, and say the president is a pro-abortion advocate and the vice president is a pro-abortion advocate. And, and, and this is the, you know, the, the administration is going to be the most pro-abortion administration we've ever seen. We tend to get nervous and worried about what that looks like. And you hear people say, oh, they're going to censor us. They're going to shut us up. They're going to close pregnancy centers down. That, that may happen in some parts of the country. Certainly it could. Uh, but, but I would caution you. In the wringing of the hands and the, uh, anxiety and all that comes with that. Look, we should concern ourselves with the work that God has called us to. What that means is when I get up in the morning, I have stuff to do. 
I have to love my family well. That's a choice. I have to lead well at hope. That's a choice. I have to be active in my community. That's a choice. But you see, if we, if we sit back and we put our, all our hope in an election, then yeah, you're going to be full of anxiety, full of worry, full of concern. Woe is me. The sky has fallen. But you see, I, I don't put my hope in the Oval Office. We still got work to do. We, we have uh, people to serve right here. And so we're going to continue to serve at Hope Resource Center. And there's pregnancy centers all over the country doing the same thing. And so I would just caution you when you think through what, oh no, what, what, the, what does this mean? What does that mean? Look, we have, we are blessed to live in the state of Tennessee. If you're not from the state of Tennessee or you're listening to this show out of state, uh, you should move to Tennessee. It's the best state in the union. But, but we're blessed to live here. We have great, uh, partnerships within Knox County. We have great partnerships within Knoxville. We, we have great partnerships with the legislature, with the governor. All of those things are important. And, and so we're going to continue those partnerships. We're going to continue to, to, to call on, uh, those partnerships and we're going to continue to serve this community because we've been tasked with serving this community. We serve this community under, uh, see, we, we've been open since 1997. So we've served this community under Bill Clinton. We've served this community under George W. We served this community under Barack Obama. We served this community under Donald Trump. And guess what? We're going to serve this community under Joe Biden. Our work still matters. And if four years from now we have another president, we're going to serve this community under that president. Because our work still matters. So, so don't, don't let yourself get into the place of, oh no, the sky is falling. Is there still work to be done? Yes. I'm not negating that fact. I'm simply saying our mission hasn't changed. It hasn't. It doesn't change. There are women in this community that need assistance, and we're going to provide that for them. And we can't do that without your support and without your partnership. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week.